I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Today, we continue a series of conversations in which we explore what a better, smarter, progressive foreign policy could look like. Today, we're going to drill down into the question of Iran, the crisis and risk of war we face today, uh, how better to manage the questions Iran raises in the future, and what a smarter, uh, better United States policy toward Iran could look like. We've got two guests today. We have Ariane Tabatabai, an associate uh, political scientist at the RAND Corporation, joining us on the line from Washington, D.C., and our colleague Dina Sfandiari, a Century Foundation fellow who's calling in from Switzerland. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm in New York with Michael Wahid Hanna. I want to start today by asking you about the current moment of crisis that we find ourselves in. Why does it seem like every party to the great deal that was negotiated not so long ago with Iran seems today uh, on the precipice of some kind of of really destructive uh, escalation with Iran. Dina, can can you explain to us what the risks are and and, and why we're at this moment? Uh, I think the biggest risk uh, is uh, is obviously a risk of military confrontation. And I think the reason why it's high today is because there no longer exists any channels of de-escalation between Iran and the U.S. Um, like it did under the previous administration, when the uh, sailors, when Iran um, took American sailors, the foreign minister Zarif was able to talk directly to Secretary Kerry, and the crisis, a, a bigger crisis, was averted, and the sailors were released in a relatively quick time frame. Remind us what year that was, Dina. Twenty sixteen. Thank you, Ariane. <laughs> um, so those channels of communication no longer exist, which means if there is any mistake um, or uh, any any threat of escalation, will um, could potentially get out of control pretty quickly. And why are we here? Um, I think that this is largely due to President Trump's uh, policy of, of getting rid of the Iran nuclear deal that was signed in 2015. Um, after the U.S. pulled out from the deal, Iran uh, decided to give it a little bit of time to see whether the deal could be implemented by the remaining parties to it. Uh, and I think that Tehran lost patience after a year. Am I right today that the, the the deal is technically still intact, just with the European members to the to the agreement and Iran, or or or, or, or what? Well, the only party that has uh, actually stepped away from the deal today is the U.S. So the remaining P4 plus one states are still parties to the deal. Um, the deal is no longer intact, though, because uh, the U.S. is making its implementation very difficult. And Iran, for its part, has now begun responding by um, by not implementing some of its own commitments. Ariane, give us a little bit of an overview of the, the, the sort of flare points in this crisis. And I mean, I have in mind the tanker episodes in the Gulf and the the uh, Iranian vessel with oil impounded in Gibraltar, but you can sort of speak at this at whatever level uh, you want to give us a sense of how dangerous open military conflict is between Iran and, and other countries today. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot that has happened over the past year. Um so President Trump withdrew the United States from the nuclear deal in on May the 8th, 2018. Um, and as Dina was suggesting earlier on, uh, the Iranians decided that the best approach to it would be to adopt this thing they, they called the strategic patience policy, uh, which meant that they essentially 
sat on their hands for a bit um, and engaged the Europeans and um, Russia and China as well, but mostly the Europeans, uh, to try to get the sanctions relief that they were promised. Um, and that was um, increasingly looking like it was not going to happen following the United States withdrawal from the deal. Um, and at the same time, they started to threaten that, you know, they would be taking action if nothing materialized, if they didn't get the what they were promised during the nuclear negotiations and as part of the JCPOA. Um, a year essentially passed without too much, um, too, too many crises, um, I should say. Um, the administration uh, here in the United States um, uh, decided that it was going to draw down the Iranian oil exports to zero in November and essentially started to impose sanctions um, and reimpose sanctions that were lifted under the nuclear deal as well. And so for a few months, we essentially had a period where every couple of weeks we had new designations, new sanctions kicking in. So the administration was really going out of, out of its way to make sure that Iran was unable to trade and to engage uh, in the global economy. Um, after a year, uh, on May the 8th, 2019, uh, the Iranian president um, made an announcement where he said that Iran was also going to begin taking a number of steps uh, to essentially uh, scale back its commitments under the nuclear deal and stop their implementation. Uh, and it essentially said, look, we are going to start uh, to step away from some of our obligations under the deal. Uh, and we're going to engage the Europeans to make sure that they give us what we want, uh, which was, again, sanctions relief, uh, Iranian ability to export its oil. Um, and, and if they do so, then we'll re we, we will continue to implement the deal. But if they don't, um, then uh, we will gradually uh, kind of take steps back from, from the deal. And from there, we have seen a number of uh, mini crises that have essentially erupted throughout the region. Um, initially, there was um, uh, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe went to Iran, uh, was trying to essentially serve as a mediator between the United States and, and Iran. Um, and when he was in Tehran, essentially meeting with the Supreme Leader and the President, uh, a couple of tankers in the Persian Gulf, uh, or I think in the Strait of Hormuz, uh, were targeted. Uh, one of them was a Japanese tanker. Uh, and uh, Iran denied, of course, that it had anything to do with it. Um, at this point, the um, U.S. Um, government, as well as other governments, have said that Iran was uh, behind the attacks. Um, there was also the downing of a drone um, in the Strait of Hormuz a few weeks ago. Um, a United States drone. A U.S. drone, correct? Um, uh, and this was this was not a little a little drone like the ones we're used to seeing in strikes. This was a large surveillance aircraft that was quite complex and, and expensive, and of which only a small number exist, right? Um, yes, and expensive is actually something to highlight because that was one of the the major sort of um, issues in the United States. Was you know this was an expensive drone. Uh, we should be retaliating for its downing. Uh, so there's been a lot of back and forth about what happened there. The Iranians said that the drone had entered um, their uh, their airspace, and so they shut it down because it's actually a surveillance drone. And so they were they they said that the drone was spying on Iran. Um, the United States, of course, says that the drone was not in Iranian airspace, um, and so they, it sort of saw that that um, attack as uh, a, a provocative um, action. 
Uh, and so there's been a lot of back and forth there as well about what happened. We almost came very, I mean, we came very close to um, the United States launching a strike on Iran following that incident. Um, President Trump, um, shortly after, um, you know, it was leaked that President Trump was going to authorize a strike on Iran, but then he has decided to pull back uh, because, as he put it, um, there would be too many Iranian casualties and he didn't want to get to that point. Dina, tell us under what scenarios we could see the type of escalation we're experiencing now lead to direct conflict. What does a possible war scenario look like? Um, I think that the main uh, scenario where we would end up with a, some kind of military confrontation is, in, is if a mistake happens or there's some kind of miscalculation by both sides um, and uh, you know one side doesn't understand an action taken by the other and that leads to conflict. Um, so are we talking about hot war in, in Iraq, in, in, the, in the Gulf, a tanker war? What's, what, are the, what are the actual scenarios? Well, the most important point is that there is no likely scenario where a military confrontation will remain limited. Um, if there is any kind of direct attack on Iran, airstrikes, for example, on Iranian um, nuclear facilities, then Tehran is going to have to respond. Now, um, Iran is not going to be able to obviously target uh, the U.S. soil, but what it will do is either respond um, uh, and target U.S. positions in the region or um, target U.S. allies and friends in the region. Um, I think what's more likely is that it will use uh, or rely on some of the groups and the proxies that it works with in the region uh, and have them target U.S. positions in the region. And Iran itself will retaliate by um, striking, for example, at you know get any kind of facility in one of the Gulf Arab states. Um, and in fact, Iran has said that this is um, what it's likely to do. So we're we're talking about Iraqi militias attacking American targets or Hezbollah attacking uh, and then maybe oil facilities in the Gulf. Uh, does that then lead to to Gulf countries and, and Arab countries also striking back? I think it would be really difficult for them not to. Um, they would have to defend their own interests. And if uh, there is if they're um, if Iran carries out strikes, on their countries, and they're going to have to retaliate in some way or another. And I think that they are much stronger militarily now than they were perhaps 5, 10, 15 years ago, uh, giving them the option to actually strike back at Iran, which means that the region would effectively be dragged into uh, military confrontation and turmoil for the foreseeable future. Affecting all the, the most important oil producers in the world. So that's that's why we care about this crisis. Absolutely. I don't think that there is any country in that region that will remain unaffected by military confrontation. Ariane, um, uh, just a, a bit of follow-up, uh, perhaps for those less initiated in the in the inner workings of the JCPOA, uh, but a question about um, the European ability to sustain the deal or the, the P4 plus one uh, ability to s sustain the deal without the United States. Why, why is that so difficult? Um, why are those countries um, not able to meet uh, the Iranian expectation about what they would get out of the nuclear deal? Well, there's a few different things here. Uh, I think there's a number of layers. Uh, one is that the Europeans have really had decades of following the U.S. lead on uh, a lot of these issues. The United States has traditionally led 
uh, non-proliferation and, and arms control agreements, and the Europeans have sort of followed. And so this is really one of the first times when they have been tested as a leader in, in this context. Uh, and so it's a bit of a learning curve for them to step up. The second issue is that they have their own interests, um, which are, you know, on the one hand, to continue cooperating with the United States. Um, they may not like a lot of the this administration's policies, but they have to live with them. And ultimately, the relationship um, with the United States um, on a security, a military, political and economic level uh, is much more um, existential. It's much more important to EU and EU member states' interests um, than the relationship with Iran. Uh, so they're sort of they're finding themselves in this place where they want to preserve the JCPOA. They see it as very important to their um, own um, security and, uh, on some level, to to their economic uh, well uh, uh, abilities to to work with with Iran. Uh, but they also don't want to and cannot afford to lose uh, the United States as as a as a, as as their greatest ally. Essentially, there's also the U.S. economic reach um, for better or worse. The United States has uh, this incredible. Uh, is is an incredible military, uh, sorry, uh, economic powerhouse. And so um, it is able to actually get states to do what it wants through economic means in ways that other countries cannot. So just to, to end this section of, of our conversation, I want to I want to ask you, uh, you, you went over some of the details of, of, of all the points of tension. And I want to ask, because this is a question in a lot of people's mind, sort of whose fault is it? Uh, and and how much uh, how much should we understand this as being uh, sort of poor Iran backed into a corner by uh, uh, Trump's uh, sort of aggressive uh, moves? How much of this should we understand as, as Iran being a bad faith spoiler actor in the region? Um, and if you could each, uh, Dina first, take like one minute to give us that uh, uh, analysis before we move move on to the next section. I think on this particular issue, it was it was clearly the United States' fault. Um, now, that's not to say that Iran is not a nefarious actor in the region and isn't doesn't have problematic policies. For sure, it does. But on this particular issue, uh, Iran continued to implement the deal. Uh, the IAEA, the organization charged with um, checking the implementation of the deal, has now confirmed, I think, 15 times that Iran was implementing the deal. So the, the nuclear deal was doing exactly what it said on the cover. It was constraining Iran's nuclear program. Today, Iran's nuclear program is not being constrained as effectively because the United States walked away from the deal and is effectively trying to prevent the remaining countries, uh, party to the deal, from implementing what's left of the agreement. And so the, the deal didn't target Iran's regional activities. It didn't target Iran's missile program. It targeted its nuclear program. And in that respect, it was working. Um, yeah, I largely agree. You know, I, I think that a year ago, um, the Europeans presented President Trump with uh, the opportunity to keep the JCPOA and to build on it and to address areas of concern that uh, are shared between the United States and the Europeans, including Iran's missile program, including regional activities. And the administration essentially said, no, we're going to walk away from the deal and we want a big for big sort of deal. And we will get that without the JCPOA um, serving as its as its basis. Um, and I think that was a missed opportunity um, that really would have allowed the United States to work with its allies, to build on the agreement and to get 
um, all of the or different areas of uh, Iranian behavior that it wanted um, under check. That said, I think in more recent weeks, what we've seen, uh, the downing of the of the drone, uh, the tanker issue, I think all of that is on Iran. It is trying to raise the costs of this maximum pressure campaign that the administration has started uh, and to raise it not just on the U.S., but also on EU, on the EU. So I think a lot of it does go back to the U.S. withdrawal from the deal. But I think that, you know, we also have to allocate blame where uh, we're appropriate on the more recent actions to Iran. We'll be right back. I'm Abir Pamuk, and I'm a summer scholar at the Century Foundation. I am a nonprofit professional from Aleppo, and I worked in Syria during the war delivering humanitarian aid to children. Now I'm finishing my studies and beginning a new career as a foreign policy analyst. Here at the Century Foundation, I am researching non-state actors and U.S. policy in the Middle East. You can see all our projects on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, in the World section. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm here in New York with Michael Wahidhana, and we've got uh, Ariane Tabatabai and Dina Svandiari on the line with us. Thanks for joining. Uh, we want to turn now to uh, the deal itself, the uh, uh, JCPOA, which uh, one of you will give us its full proper name uh, 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 in a second. Um and I want to start with with this idea that's been put on the table, and I'm just not sure how realistic it is. A lot of supporters of the deal, including presidential candidates, but also all kinds of analysts, say the the the, the position of the U.S. should be to re-enter the deal. Uh, you know, either Trump could do it, or we could wait until after Trump is gone. And I want to ask uh, ask you. Is that is that even possible? Can, you know, how would that work if the U.S. were to raise its hand today or in 2022 and say, "Hey, we'd we'd like to um, come back to this thing"? So, ideally, uh, yes, it would be possible for the U.S. to simply walk back into the deal and everything would go back to normal in terms of the implementation of the deal and Iran's nuclear, you know, commitments, uh, and then uh, basing based on that. Uh, the countries concerned would then be able to expand discussions to other areas of concern, including what Iran is doing in the region and its missile program, for example. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that is likely or even possible. Um, while some of the uh, Democratic candidates have said they would rejoin the deal, um, and I think that many of those wor who worked on the deal or, or helped negotiate it uh, welcome that kind of move, um, I firstly don't think it would be possible, although the deal doesn't mention anything in terms of exiting and, and getting back into it. Um, and actually, the Iranians, uh, interestingly enough, uh, do not simply want the United States to rejoin the deal because uh, they now say that being a part to the deal is, uh, is a privilege because it gives you access to mechanisms such as the dispute resolution mechanism and, and that, that would effectively lead to, um, you know, the ability to, to call on the international community to punish Iran. Um, and Iran doesn't want the U.S. to have access to that. So what Iran has asked for is for the U.S. to declare that it is committed to the deal without rejoining it uh, and then implement its end of the bargain, which is to ensure that Iran would be able to, um, you know, increase trade with uh, Europe to sell its oil, etc. So that from Iran's perspective, that's the ideal scenario. Ariane? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, there's a number of challenges um, going forward uh, with re-entering the deal. And, you know, I, I think that there's a bit of a recognition of it. Uh, some slowly but surely, people are, are starting to, to recognize that 2015 and 2021 are not, you know, it's not the same Time frame. It's uh, we've now have had multiple crises um, that we didn't have in the lead to the to the JCPOA, um, and I think there's a number of things. One is that politically, it may not be as easily uh, feasible for the United States to re-enter the deal. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback at home. Uh, and the same thing can be uh, true of Iran. Uh, right after the new um, administration um, or the existing administration continues uh, its second term uh, or takes office, uh, the Iranians are going to have elections, presidential elections. And um, Rouhani can't run again. Um, he has served his two terms or he would have served his two terms by then that are allowed under the Iranian constitution. Uh, and so he will only have about six months to figure out what to do with the JCPOA. I'm sure he would like to preserve it. It's his sort of flagship policy uh, achievement. Uh, but at the same time, he's domestically going to see a lot of pressure um, if um, he simply essentially returned uh, to, you know, Iran simply started to implement its end of the bargain uh, again uh, without anything more coming from the United States, without any more concessions, essentially, uh, or benefits. But, and Ariane, with with the moves that Iran has taken in the last few months uh, to to start distancing itself from some of its commitments under the JCPOA, will there even be? Forget about at the end of Trump's term in in six months' time or a years' time, will there even be a deal to to return to? Yeah, and that's a fundamental question. Uh, I'm not sure that the deal will still be there by then. I think that there are certainly people in Iran as well as here who would like to see the deal sustained until January 2021. But whether or not that's possible is entirely is an entirely different question. Iran is already, as Dina was mentioning earlier on, is already taking steps uh, in violation of the deal and um, scaling those activities back, even though it says that it would like to do that once the Europeans give it the benefit at once, is not going to be as simple. Um, technically, those steps are reversible, uh, but politically, it's a lot harder to go back into the to into full implementation of, of the deal for, for Iran. So I think that is one major question that needs to be addressed. There's also the, the issue of um, what has happened since outside of the JCPOA, which will affect the JCPOA um, in 2021, including the crises you know, of the of the past few weeks, but also the regional aspects um, of Iran's activities. Uh, it's a lot harder today to distinguish and to decouple the nuclear file from the regional file um, as it was in 2015 uh, when when Iran was in where it is today. It's an interesting uh, thing to think about. When, when Obama's team was negotiating this deal, they very consciously set aside other issues and said, we're going to focus on this one priority. And then afterwards, we can talk about Iraq or Syria or Yemen or rockets. Uh, but looking at the region today where, you know, there's plenty of bad actors, and I don't single out Iran alone, uh, but Iran has a lot of, of culpability on its hands from uh, signally its, its destabilizing moves in Syria uh, and its, its, um, its approach to Iraq uh, and its role in the Yemen war. All of these things are, are just those three alone are major serious uh, issues, um, and it's very hard 
from the perspective of someone who supported the deal and who supports de-escalation and in general avoiding the prospect of war with Iran uh, at the same time to say, geez, you know, Iran's doing a lot of really problematic, troubling things. And we can't just say the only thing that matters here is is the nuclear program. Can I add to that? Um, I think that uh, I think that the, the other problem is that actually Iran and the U.S. have made it difficult to decouple it because they have brought in um, the regional context, their relationship uh, and, and a range of other issues into um, at the forefront of of dealing with the the nuclear deal itself. When Iran targets tankers from neighboring countries in the region, then it makes it in retaliation for the U.S. walking away from the deal and for implementing additional sanctions. It naturally links the two together, which is why it makes it really difficult for Iran's neighbors to then completely ignore that. When the U.S. threatens um, Iran with military action uh, as a result of of you know shooting down a drone, for example. Um, inevitably, uh, the the fallout from such military action would affect the region much more. And in fact, I think Iran uh, has made it clear that it, if such action was to be taken against it, then it would retaliate. It could not retaliate on U.S. soil, so it would have to retaliate in the region. Um, and that, of course, ties those two issues much more together. And this is a, a, a fundamental uh, a fundamental question of, of how to analyze the situation. You look at the escalation ladder, and there are hawks in the U.S. who seem to believe that the more they back Iran into a corner, the more likely they are to get Iran to give give things up, and that in any case, they don't expect the U.S. to pay a strategic price. Uh, the other perspective, which I, I hold, is that in a escalation uh, and an increase in conflagration, the region suffers and ultimately U.S. interests suffer more than Ar- Iran. Uh, but I'm curious, as, as uh, Ariane and then and then Dina, how you see that escalation ladder playing out uh, to the benefit or detriment of, of either side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the maximum pressure campaign has essentially shown that this is, um, that this narrative, that if we back a country into a corner and just seek it and seek uh, capitulation by that country, then, you know, we're demonstrating strength and we're meeting U.S. Um, national interests and, and objectives. Um, that's a fallacy. The maximum pressure campaign, including the designation of the IRGC as a foreign, ter- a foreign terrorist organization, um, has shown that, you know, this sort of symbolic uh, muscle flexing is not going to get Iran to actually dial down its um, nefarious activities. It's going to dial them up. Uh, the more it sees itself backed into a corner, the more it's going to lash out, as we have seen um, over the past few weeks. So um, I think there is, you know, the, the idea that by credibility, by showing credibility, by showing force, uh, we can get a country to completely change its mindset, to stop thinking about its national security interests and objectives um, the way it has been doing for decades is is just completely wrong. Um, And I think that it stems in part from the fact that we understand Iranian national interests fundamentally differently from the way they understand their national interests. And we think that they should be thinking the way we do about it. But uh, obviously, that's that's not possible. Iran does do a lot of terrible things in the region. 
its policies in Syria have been largely devastating and and destructive and um, and you know um, but they're they're different from the way Iran behaves in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq and we tend to not decouple these different theaters and these different areas of interest that Iran has and some of them its security objectives are uh, and concerns are more legitimate and in others it's really just an opportunity opportunistic player. Um, Dida and I have written about this, um, actually wrote about this many years ago, uh, when Iran started to uh, support the Houthis in the current conflict, we said, you know, Yemen is very different from, um, from Iraq for Iran. Uh, it's really just using its influence there to back the, the Saudis into a corner and to deny them a victory. And I think that's largely true still today. In fact, probably more true than it was then. Um, uh, but but we have to understand these different sets of concerns and objectives and uh, respond to them accordingly, as opposed to a blanket sort of pressure campaign that doesn't serve U.S. interests. Yeah, I, I broadly agree with what Ariane has said. Um, I would actually just add to that uh, a pretty simple exercise. If we put ourselves in the shoes of um, Iranian policymakers in Tehran um, and you're l- trying to figure out what to do next, well, it's, it's pretty simple. If you abide by uh, Pompeo's 12-point plan, then you're effectively capitulating to the U.S. So that might be good short-term because it means you might be able to negotiate um, uh, something else and, and get more for it. But of course, what it means is that you've capitulated to the U.S., which means that any other time in the future where you have a similar situation um, and the U.S. wants something from you, they, the lesson they will have taken away from it, as well as everybody else in the international community, is that if you put enough pressure on Tehran, then they'll cave. So naturally, Iran can't do that, which is why this policy won't work. You know, on this point, we know what the stated purpose of this maximum pressure campaign is on the part of the United States. Uh, is Iran's posture here simply um, defensive, reactionary? Um, what's their theory of the case? How are their actions now furthering their interests? Actually, I would I would differ slightly with um, with what you've said. I don't think that the stated policy of the maximum pressure campaign is is that clear. Nobody has made it clear. Some people say it's a return to negotiations. Uh, others have made it clear that it's to increase pressure on Iran and to squeeze it through the sanctions. Again, to what effect, we don't know. Uh, others seem to want regime change in Iran. And so again, if you're sitting in Tehran, you're looking at this, it's unclear what the other side wants you to do. If it's just a return to the negotiation table, then I guess you could try to you know, take the, the that on politically, despite the fact that internally it would be pretty devastating. But if you took that on, then you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what the other side wants to negotiate with you because you already negotiated on the nuclear deal and they walked away from it and you didn't get anything for it. So what? how much more are you going to have to give up and how much less are you going to get in return? Um, so again, from Tehran's perspective, the objective of the maximum pressure campaign doesn't seem to be very clear. In terms of what Iran is doing, um, again, from their perspective, the strategy seems to be pretty clear. The U.S. walked away from the deal. We're going to give the remaining states party a certain amount of time to implement the deal and see if we can continue to salvage what's left of it. Uh, The Iranians lasted about a year. um, And when the U.S. maximum pressure campaign increased in speed and, uh, and, and in pressure, Um, beginning in early May, then Iran started to consider what it would have to do in return. And so again, from its perspective, it waited, it was patient, nothing happened, the pressure increased. 
So now it has to respond in order to show the Europeans and Russia and China, the remaining states party to the deal, that it's serious about downgrading its commitments to the deal um, and, and no longer uh, implementing parts of it. Um, Tehran thinks that by doing that, it will be able to get something in return. We'll be right back. At a time when the focus of politics on being the loudest voiced and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. And we've had a lot of practice at it, 100 years in fact. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and I work on US foreign policy and Middle Eastern politics, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. Our approach is simple. We sweat the details, doing the hard work today to ensure policy progress tomorrow. In the century ahead, we'll continue to prioritize rigor over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. If you want to help write the progressive headlines of tomorrow, support us today. This is the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis here in New York with Michael Wahidhana, joined on the line by Ariane Tabatabai from Washington and Dina Svandiari in Switzerland. We're talking about Iran, the crisis with the U.S. and the rest of the world, and what could happen next, how it could be better. So in this last uh, segment of the conversation, uh, I want to ask our guests uh, to turn toward that future and the, the future could be now or the future could be uh, 2021. Uh, but I, I want you to sketch out for us what a, uh, given where we are now, what a smarter U.S. policy could look like. What What's actually possible and plausible, what's desirable, uh, what, what could America do right uh, with Iran? The first step is um, to try to demystify Iran. Uh, you know, we tend to again, try to couple all of Iran's activities under this sort of banner of nefarious um, Iranian behavior. Uh, and there is a lot of that, but there is also areas where Iran just cannot um, stop the way it's doing things. It, can, it cannot change its um, current behavior because that's what uh, its actual national security interests dictate. Um, and if you look back to decades of Iranian foreign policy, uh, and decision-making going back to before the revolution, it becomes more apparent, apparent where uh, those areas are, right? In Afghanistan and Iraq, Iran has a number of legitimate concerns and it's pursuing those. In other theaters, it is really just opportunistically trying to leverage chaos and, and um, a lack of opportunity and, and, and conflict to its own advantage. And so the first step is to kind of try to decouple all of this and understand where Iran's legitimate concerns are, uh, where we may not be able to get uh, Iran to back uh, uh, step, take a step back from what it's currently doing, and where, um, well, it, you know, we we really need them to to actually scale back their their activity. Uh, the second thing is um, that I think, you know, this administration specifically has focused largely on sanctions as the only tool of foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran. 
uh, and potentially other countries, but we're focusing on Iran here. Um, a better way to look at and think about uh, getting Iran to essentially change its, its behavior would be to uh, think about other tools that we have at our disposal. And you have to use all these different mechanisms uh, at the same time and in a smart way in order to get the objectives uh, and the outcomes. That you what are those uh, uh, better other tools in addition to sanctions or the, the threat of violence, which is another one that, that's often on the table, it seems? Yeah, well, so you have a range, right? You have diplomacy, uh, you have um, multilateral diplomacy, you have bilateral diplomacy, um, you have obviously sanctions, um, political pressure, um, just sort of simple naming and shaming, um, all the way to uh, military um, uh, threats. So this, there's a range of tools that are available to the United States. We just seem to be picking one or two right now and focusing on those and then ignoring everything else. So I want to I want to put something out there, which I you know, which I think is important as we think about how to do this better. Uh, a sad lesson that I take from from the years during which the deal was being ne- negotiated is that um, acting like a patient realist in good faith with Iran doesn't pay off as well as it should. So I I, I believed or, or I, I, I found convincing the Obama administration rationale that uh, that essentially Iran does have a sphere of influence and, and the U.S. shouldn't contest every single foothold that Iran has. Some of the things you just mentioned, Ariane, Iran's interests in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and that in general, even if there are things we don't like, we just we have to acknowledge reality and Iran has a certain amount of power and we can't just fight everything they have and everything they do. Uh, and the I think a bitter uh, lesson one can take from from those years pre-Trump is that when when Iran was given a lot of breathing room on these other issues, it ramped up its spoiler-like behavior in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, uh, and it did not act like a regional power that was being treated with respect and toleration by by the United States. Uh, and that I find dismaying because I I've always argued, oh, if the U.S. just acts uh, more respectful of these troubling, but, you know, actors that have some legitimacy nonetheless, uh, that those actors will then behave in a, in a more responsible way. Uh, and I don't think that's how it played out. And, and I think that's a tough lesson to take because right now, I mean, right now, Trump is, is sort of taking the worst possible actions in a lot of these, in a lot of these confrontations. So it's easy to say like, what should we do? Well, not that, because that's like, you know, maximum pressure, the worst possible approach. Okay, great. That's the worst possible approach. What's a good approach given that we had what seemed like a good approach and it didn't yield dividends? And and let me just add one little bit to that. And that is, uh, you know, if Iran sees the end point of all this as they're becoming the regional hegemon um, with a diminished American role, you know, if that's the, the 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 end goal of all this, is there really um, a way to 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 negotiate positive outcomes uh, at a at a kind of uh, smaller or, or or more tactical level? Um, if those are the stated aims, and maybe those aren't the stated aims, but it, it seems as if that. Uh, that's the desired endpoint, uh, from my perspective. Um, I think, from Tehran's perspective, um, that uh, endpoint, while perhaps desired, I think they're also very much aware that it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Um, I think it's normal that any country would want to be a, a regional powerhouse and hegemon, uh, and I think there are a number of others in the region that feel the same way. 
Um, so of course, Iran wants it. I don't think that that um, disqualifies it from from being somebody that that the West and the U.S. can negotiate with, um, because Iran knows that it faces a number of other adversaries in the region that are uh, significant, to put it mildly. So the U.S., Saudi Arabia, today the UAE, um, and and that's just in the Persian Gulf region. So it's not even going beyond that. Um, so I don't think that that disqualifies uh, Iran from from you know having negotiations with with the others. Uh, in terms of what would be a, a, a desirable way forward, I think that actually um, negotiations and dialogue have proved to us that actually they've been quite effective. Now, granted, Iran's activities in the region um, did not improve. Uh, I totally agree on that front. But the one thing that the agreement targeted did work. Iran's activities on the nuclear front were constrained. Um, and so it, clearly dialogue with Iran does lead to um, desirable outcomes. It's just painful and it takes a long time, um, but ultimately it worked. And so I think that if the U.S. Um, were uh, to set up a, situ uh, a scenario like the Europeans did, um, where right after the deal they set up a high-level political dialogue with Iran to discuss a range of issues from uh, you know, discussing problematic aspects of Iranian policy like human rights um, in Iran and its regional activities to more positive things like trade with Iran and educational exchanges with Iran. Um, I think that kind of dialogue uh, and, and just you know, being face-to-face -face would be really, really useful for U.S. policy. I also think that they should set up uh, channels of de-escalation, much like the U.S. and the Iranian Navy have in the Persian Gulf, but that should be expanded to include a range of other uh, areas um, of operation. So is our, our next talks with Iran, whenever they come, are they going to have to be much less ambitious than the talks that led to the JCPOA? Are they going to be about creating red lines and, and these kinds of de-escalation channels rather than about more broadly ambitious things like calming down the regional competition between the the UAE, Saudi on one hand and Iran on the other, and normalizing with the U.S. and Europe? Um, normalizing with the U.S. is probably not going to be uh, top of the agenda anytime soon, um, a, largely because it's not desirable from a domestic perspective in Iran, but uh, in the U.S. as well. Um, but I actually don't think it should be less ambitious than the nuclear deal. I think it should be equally ambitious for the nuclear deal. As long as it uh, dialogue with Iran covers particular areas of, of, of interest. I think that you can have dialogue on a range of issues um, in parallel to one another um, and things that are particularly problematic, like, for example, the range of Iranian missiles, you could have more technical discussions on that and hopefully come to an agreement. The problem today is that after um, the U.S. walked away from the deal, it has a credibility problem vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. And so... Um, in my opinion, this not, kind of not just vis-a-vis -vis Iran, by the way, this has got a credibility problem worldwide. Paris Accords sure. and many other things. Yeah, absolutely. And while while Iran could have entertained the possibility of having a more widespread dialogue with the U.S. on a range of issues um, right after the deal, or at least once the deal was implemented and it looked like it was going to be possible to continue discussions, today it's it's a lot more difficult um, and. This is where the discussion about whether the U.S. re-entering the deal is possible or worth it or will help offset that credibility issue or not. Ariane? Well, I, I do. I mean, I agree with, with a lot of what's been said. I, I do think, though, that 
Iran inevitably will have to engage with the United States if it wants to come out of the situation it is in currently, which, you know, I don't see as sustainable. Um, Iran may be able to kind of um, get itself to 2021, uh, but should President Trump get a second term in office, um, or even if he's replaced by a different administration, um, Iran will have to inevitably engage on a, not, on a range of issues. And here's the thing. The, the thing is that, you know, the 12 points that Secretary Pompeo laid out are very specific to this administration. But the general points, the general ideas behind them are actually shared by both Republicans and Democrats with maybe a few exceptions here and there. Um, so Iran's ballistic missile uh, program, uh, support for terrorist groups, um, regional interventions and human rights, which is not actually explicitly um, laid out in, in the 12 points. All of them are things that both sides of the aisle um, see as challenging uh, for U.S. interests and that they, they take issue with uh, when it comes to Iran. So if Iran wants to get sanctions relief, if it wants to improve its economy, I think that in inevitably we will see negotiations on some of those, if not all of those points. What does that negotiation look like? I mean, uh, this is obviously speculative. It's probably looking, you know, in, in some ways uh, unrealistically too far into the future. Uh, but but Stadassi mentioned the sort of disappointment with what the JCPOA produced. What 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 is a realistic? Uh, what are the realistic topics of conversation? You've both mentioned uh, ballistic missiles, uh, but you know we, there was no budge on Yemen. What does an agenda look like that that uh, one could imagine producing a, at least incremental results? Well, you know, I, I think um, if we're looking at re the regional, I, I think we need to kind of separate these different issues um, in terms of negotiations. Uh, if we were talking about the regional portfolio, I don't see a sustainable process um, in which the regional players are not involved. Um, in other words, I don't think you can just have the U.S. and Iran sitting across the table and dividing up the region without any input from uh, Saudi Arabia, um, the UAE, um, and you know potentially um, Israel and, and others. So um, whether they're directly involved, as I think the, the Persian Gulf countries would have to be, or if they're indirectly involved, as I'm assuming Israel would, would have to be, um, you, you have to have some sort of regional process. And the US and the EU would play a role in that, um, but it's not realistic to exclude them entirely. Um, that was already a sore point in the JCPOA talks, and that was on Iran's nuclear program. On the missile front, I think that the any kind of engagement would obviously have the EU more at the forefront than some of the other countries. Um, they have more credibility on this. Um, it, uh, you know, um, the the range of Iranian missiles specifically is a a, a, a big concern for them. Um, but I, I think that you know whether or not they take place at the same time, um, or or you know if they sort of happen in an incremental way has to be determined down the line. Uh, but I simply don't see a world in which we have several years of negotiations on one topic, um, as we did with the JCPOA, and then say, okay, and then we will consider other things. I think that you will have to have a broader engagement in order for um, a single area to, to be a, sort of a, a attainable um, process um, in the future. So we're talking about a, a next chapter in which uh, uh, we're in a worse position than we were in in 2008, and we try to 
maybe regain some of the successes of, of this nuclear deal and then uh, if we can revive them and then uh, and then go from there to some of these other equally important security concerns. Uh, that's all the time we have. I really appreciate uh, you joining us. Thanks uh, to Ariane Tabatabai, Associate Political Scientist at RAND Corporation, who uh, joined us from Washington, D.C., and Dina Svandiari, a fellow at the Century Foundation who joined us from Switzerland. I'm Thanasi Kambanis here in New York with Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, You've been listening to the TCF World Podcast, and uh, we'll look forward to having you join us next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.